Well, good morning. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to uh, Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. We'll be looking at a few verses in uh, just a couple minutes. Well, I was thinking last time that I was here, for those of you who were here, you might remember, uh, hopefully you remember more than a few things, but you remember the incident with the the dishes in the uh, China, right? Does anybody remember that? You know, I forgot to actually tell you the um, part of that story. Um, I made myself look worse than I already was by forgetting to have mentioned that um, it had a good outcome. The, the day that I had taken the uh, dishes that was at a, which turned out to be my mother's and my wife hadn't had a chance to look at them, I went the next day back to Niles and the people were, who were there weren't there. So that was a wasted trip. And then went back the following week and actually got all the dishes back. Um, so she then had a chance to look at them, and she actually loved the ones that I had given. Um, so they're back, and they're on display at our house. So that was a good outcome. So I have a garage sale in a couple of weeks for my brother and, and his wife, so I've already realized again that when it comes to going through the stuff in our garage over the next couple of weeks, she'll be there with me. I'm not, I'm not going to um, do that on my own anymore. Well, we just came back from uh, a wonderful cruise. The first time we've ever been on a cruise, we went to the South Caribbean for our 30th anniversary, so we're still married And uh, after all that, and also for her 50th birthday. And I can say that because she looks like she's going backwards in age, so she's 50 but looking like she's 40 to me. And um, we were on this line called the Caribbean Princess. It's um, kind of amazing when I looked at this, this ship, if you've ever been on one of these lines cost uh, back in 2004 to, to launch the ship, $500 million. And the tonnage is 112,894 gross registered tons, 951 feet long. And if you've been in that situation where you've been on a cruise, you know one of the dangers of one is the amount of food that they throw at you. So there was an awesome gym added, and I found that I needed to sometimes go to that three times a day after the amount of food that they gave us. But while there, the Lord was um, just speaking to me, and I was just thinking of all the different kind of analogies in Scripture there are about ships and about sea and about, example, for example, Jesus is our captain in storms. And I was kind of somewhat half and half on the storms. I didn't want storms, but on the other hand, I sort of wanted to see a, a something. Took all the Dramamine and all that on one day and didn't need it for the rest of the trip. It was also calm. But when you're, um, you start to think about all the different analogies of, of Scripture, and Hebrews 6 came to me a few weeks back, and I was reading it on the, uh, with as much time as we had on our deck to read. But I found myself in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. And really the, the theme this morning for the few minutes we have together is just this idea that the anchor holds. It's, it's steadfast and it's sure. We can trust in this. In Hebrews 13, uh, the writer says, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, which is amazing in and of itself that God would be this gracious and kind to do that. Saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves. 
You often hear people do that, don't you? On my mother's grave. Or you have to, when you go into court of law, you swear on the Bible. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hope, hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. Notice that God wants us this morning um, to be greatly encouraged. He doesn't want you just encouraged. He wants you greatly encouraged. And we have this hope, verse 19, as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. You know, a little bit of this, uh, this book in Hebrews is the Christians there were going through some tough times. They were going through persecution. Um, all wasn't rosy. The, the storms of, of, of hardship as far as persecution goes and, and was intense. And among other things here, it seems like in the writing in Hebrews, what the, the author wants the believers to remember is that whatever hopes Judaism might have been throwing back at you, Whatever the hopes are that the world might be throwing back at you as far as the life of going backwards from this following this new Jesus, this Jesus, the one who rose from the dead. Maybe it's actually better if you go that way than to stick with him and to stick with this difficulty and the suffering and some of the persecution and all the hardship that follows knowing him and wanting to go wherever it is he tells you to go. And so the writer wants them to remember, you know, it's worth it. And I want, he says, I want you to be greatly encouraged about this anchor that you have and whom you're trusting in so that when those times come and it doesn't seem, maybe seem that this is as real, our future and our hope. It doesn't seem to maybe be as real as what the world is throwing at you. Believe me, it is. And so for us today, you know, we just fast forward to 2011 and wherever we are in our circumstance, if we know God today, we know him as our, our Lord and Savior then sometimes, you know, it's kind of like the, the world is still throwing all those attractions, all those things that the devil maybe himself wants you just to kind of get sort of lured into. Kind of slowly but surely um, start to drift back to. And you think of how at sea, that's something that a ship doesn't want to do, to start to drift. And, and that is kind of the whole motivation, I think, of where he's going here. When we were on our cruise and we went to one of the islands, St. Thomas, if you've ever been there, we, you know, we saw just... You know, what do you say? It's the water, of course, is beautiful and everything else. But I saw some ships, small ships that looked like they had run aground. They were up against the shore, all crashed up and, and looks like they'd been tossed and battered by the waves. There had been a hurricane that had passed there a couple of years earlier. And so you saw some ships that were damaged and they, they weren't, uh, they hadn't made it. They were weathered. Now, you think about this analogy, and there's different ways you can use this definition of the word, but the writer here does use the word anchor. He says, we have an anchor for the soul. And so for me, of course, when I was on, on, at sea, I was looking at all of these different moorings and, and the, the anchors of what I saw of other ships. And really, 
we know what it is, I, I assume. It's that, you know, and it, they look differently. Sometimes they look like that, you know, that steel thing that has the, the hooks. Sometimes it's a massive type rock or something like that. But at sea, it's that large, heavy object which is used to secure and hold a boat securely in place. That's a simple definition. We can understand that. And the idea of this is to keep it from drifting off or going into danger. Interestingly, the dictionary gives another definition for, for anchor, and we can relate to this too. It says, and switching out of the, the sea analogy or the shipping uh, illustration, is it's a person or a thing that can be relied on for support, stability, or security. And so then we immediately now start to shift our, our tensions. We start to think, wow, I can think of a person. Maybe you have a person in your life in one sense, in the human sense, has been an anchor. But there is only one true, genuine, real, thorough, and sure anchor. And that's the Lord Jesus himself. Part of the things of what God was speaking to me over the last uh, couple weeks and month on, on this whole subject is, and maybe you're in this situation or you know people like I do right now who are in a time where they're going through, through some very uh, stormy seas in their lives. Um, and the, the challenge is, is that if you like, the, the feeling sometimes is, is they feel like the ship, their ship, their life is, is stranded and it's drifting. And there's a lot of waves that are crashing on them. I have a couple of examples now of friends who have children, um, young adults in their 20s um, who have fallen into drugs um, and some really tough times in that. Believing family, uh, family that brought their children up in the ways of the Lord. And yet, through a number of circumstances, uh, having a child that's gone away from God. In a room this size, with a group this size, we can, can relate. We may be in a situation where we were that child to our parent, or we may even have children today, whether they're young or they're older, who aren't walking as close to God as we keep on wanting them and are praying for God to be doing that in their lives. David asked this question in Psalm 11.3, said, When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? And this is a legitimate and it's a great question that David asked. And because David knew the balance of when he asked the why questions, they weren't in the sense of like sometimes where we're on the receiving end, is, especially as we were younger kids, I trust, where we'd be like, it'd be one thing to say, you know, I kind of wonder why. And then it's another thing to say, you know, when we were growing up, Why? You know, why do I have to clean my room? You know, why does, you know, so-and-so get to do this and I don't? And that's a kind of a different why that starts going off into being narky and, and everything else and complaining. But David asked this question. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? You may be in a place today or you've been there where it seems like the foundations the very things that are part of your life and what your stability is are being destroyed. Gosh, how many people over the last couple of years have gone through the situation of the economic downturn where people had jobs? And not that that was what they were trusting in, but when you have a job, that's a pretty important thing. And all of a sudden, maybe the economy is down. I was talking to somebody yesterday that said he's taking a $25,000 pay cut over for what he made last year. 
It's pretty significant. It doesn't mean he's, this isn't a guy who says, well, I can sell my boats and, you know, I can, do, you know, sell the second home up in the mountains. It's not that kind of situation. What about severe illness when it just comes out of the blue? We're healthy. God, thank you, Lord, for that today. May not be that way next week. Or like I said, wayward child. Or for me, in my situation, as you well know, last year, parents passing away so closely together, so suddenly, in many ways. You might be facing, and someone has said this, and I love it, you might be facing the storm of doubt, discouragement, and defeat. And it's battering your ship. Or you might be experiencing, as I mentioned to you when I was here last and meeting with a group of men who are wanting to live holy lives and are wanting to avoid the issues of, of lust and things of that nature, and we, we meet together each week, but they want, and they're experiencing the winds, I should say, of temptation, trials, and tears, and they have ripped your sails. And really, and you might wear this so that people know it, or it might be something more internal inside that only a few do, but you're experiencing fear. You're, under, you're experiencing frustration and failure. And sadly, what's happening in that situation is replacing what God wants for us, and that's joy, hope, and peace. Interesting, in the days of the early church, the anchor was a symbol of hope. There's over 60 uh, pictures of anchors that have been found on walls and of the catacombs of the Christians in Rome. And today, I trust you're in the situation where you're able to say, as you read Hebrews chapter 6, that you have an anchor. But you know what? There, and there may be someone here, and you obviously, I trust, are living in the world, and so you know a number of people I, I trust and are, are hopefully God's given you opportunities to, to talk to these folks. There are people who do not have this anchor that we're describing and the writer's talking about here in Hebrews 6. What have they anchored their lives to? They've anchored their lives to jobs. And what happens when those get taken away? They've anchored them to success, to money, relationships, possessions, power. And it's a very valid, and it's in this sense that we know what happens to that, don't we? It's like shifting sand. And as the hymn writer said, all other ground is sinking sand unless we are trusting in the solid rock. And so when we think this morning and as we go through this passage, there's a couple of things here that we can, we can just really take huge, huge and great encouragement on about why we can be so sure today when we walk out of here in 30 minutes that our anchor is going to hold, that it is. And then you found it really in the first couple of verses I read. The first one is, is that God's promises never change. Verses 13 and 15, he says this. God promised Abraham, and, and if we know the Lord, we know the story back in Genesis chapter 15. That his descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky. Now you say, well, that's, and you know this, Abraham wasn't 18 years old. He wasn't 20. He wasn't saying, hey, you're going to father someone when you're 25 or father children. He was about 75. Now we don't really fully know because I think he passed away when he was about 175, if I, my memory serves me right. So I don't know exactly what a man at 75 was like at that point. In history, but he was an older man. And you can tell because of the way they react to it that it's like, really? What? When Sarah had that reaction. But yet, amazingly, he believed the promises of God. Even when he gets told by God at, at age, you're going to be uh, a father of the nations. 
Romans 4.21, it says this. He was being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. And so you can be sure that your anchor holds today this morning because God doesn't go back on his promises. We do, don't we? We don't mean to, I trust. There's a lot of times we say, you know, I'll do that. I'll call you. You know, I'll do this and I'll do that. I'll go get that at the store. And you'll get home and you say, hey, honey, where's the milk? You forgot. You know, promised. But forgot. What trust Abraham had in God. And then, of course, we know the story about 25 years later. 25 years later. Not nine months later for Sarah. And think about that. 25 years later, when he's nearly 100 years old, Isaac is born. And then if you're familiar with the story, just picture it. What everything God has said about what's going to happen to this, to you through this son. And then God one day says, I want you to take him. I want you to take him to Mount Moriah. And I want you to offer him up as a, as a sacrifice to me. And as a parent today, uh, we got to be dialed in enough to know, wow. That's one of those situations in life where you'd be like, do I obey God? Okay, I can obey you just in about everything you tell me, but I don't know about this one. Yet he didn't do that. He did. Immediately, when God said it, he went up. And then the Lord, of course, saw his, his obedience and said, you know, stop. But he was... But the encouraging thing is, is God was really impressed with Abraham's faith and obedience. And so the Lord is watching us today, and he sees the things that you do in secret, and he sees the things that you do in, in, in public. And when your heart is, and that's the motivation from your heart, is that you want to please him and obey him, he's noticing. And I've and I got to believe it, it brings a smile to his face when he says, there's my child, loving me, obeying me, trusting in me. As a parent, you can just say, you know, that's, those are the, that's the ideal, isn't it, for your kid? And that's what Abraham did. But something else it says, and it's something else we can believe here and why our anchor holds, is not only because God's promises never change, but God's purposes, as great as they are, and his character never change. Verse 17, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. That's an incredible act of kindness and grace on God's part to confirm it with an oath. His purposes are never subject to change. He said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will... Back in Genesis, he says, I will surely bless you. And if you read this, you might say, well, why does God take an oath to show that his purposes never change? Isn't his word that he said, isn't his word enough? And I would say, yes, it is, Lord. It's enough. Your word's enough. I believe what you say. But God was very kind in doing that. And that's what an oath is. It's a confirmation of the truth and integrity of his word. And that's exactly what God did. Why was Abraham so sure in what God told him? Why did he believe God? 
Because Abraham, in his in dealings with the Lord and in his interactions with him, he knew that God was somebody who has a character that you can trust, that it's unchanging, that he's not uh, one way Monday, kind of different on Tuesday, back to how he is on Wednesday, totally different Thursday, you know, up and down. One of the frustrations I'm sure maybe you experience in life and maybe someone experiences with you is, is that you want to be dependable. You want to be uh, able to rely on someone. I asked when we were away on our vacation, I asked uh, my daughter, three tasks I want for you. Or we have one living at home out of the four now. Thank you, Lord. Um, uh, water the lawns, please. Water the flowers. Pick up after the dog's business. Well, as you know, if you've been out to sea and you're in international waters, it's pretty expensive. So... Um, I wasn't going to, matter of fact, Ado called at one point in the middle of the cruise, unknowns to him. I hear the phone ring about three in the morning, and, I, and it rings, and I see a, a missed call, and I'm thinking, you know, the worst, of course, sadly. What was wrong? What was wrong? So then immediately the next morning, I had to go to the computer, spend, I think, like $100,000 for a minute, you know, kind of thing, and um, find out if everything was well on, on email, and everything was. But I did get uh, on the email and started asking one of the daughters, the daughter, did you do this? Da, da, da. And then I get back a response that I wasn't exactly thrilled with <laughs> when I checked the next day. But yet my son-in-law did above and beyond what I had asked if he could do. And next thing I know, when I came back, he had removed jungle gyms from the grass and he'd done this and that and tore down a shed. And I was like, wow, you know, I almost felt like I needed to pay him. But um, he's getting a good ribeye steak on that one. But dependable. One of the things about God is he's faithful. I don't know how many times do, uh, I do this, and I'll, I wish I could do it a uh, hundred more times, but I, do you ever find yourself just stopping and even speaking out loud to the Lord? And you might be in your car, you could be anywhere, but just saying, man, you are so faithful, Lord. I mean, man, respectfully. But God, you're so faithful. I, I mean, whether it's when you lay your, pillow, your head down on the pillow at night or if it's in the morning when you rise... Or if you're driving throughout the day and you just see how God just continues to shower his grace on us in so many different ways. Amen. Don't miss it. Don't miss it in just all the stuff that's happening in the average day of how God is showing himself faithful. Hebrews 13, the writer says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That's, that's awesome. Uh, we have someone that is the solid rock. It just, he doesn't change. And the awesome thing is, is when you think about that, we know God wants us to change. And we'll address that in a couple minutes. And truth be told, there's probably folks around us that we would like to see also God change. Uh, and maybe we're praying in that end. Asking God to do that, not us trying hard to do that. That doesn't work. But yet with the Lord, the beautiful thing about him is there's nothing he needs to change. It, he's, he's perfect through and through. The character of God is, is just brilliant and so when you look at the lord that's who we be, need to be turning to that's why we have this confidence because we look at him and we say there's not one thing about your character there's not one uh, flaw there's not one slight even weakness god in anything about you now we might find that easy to acknowledge now but when i go here in a few minutes this is where the it gets tough and then are we able to say the same thing like we're just saying blessed be the name of the lord when everything is it should be, as that song said, as far as we're concerned, everything is it should be. 
the sun is shining, you know, the wind is at your back, health is good, friends are fam- fabulous, everybody's behaving, then blessed be the name of the Lord. But there was another stanza on that song. What about when it's the road marked with suffering? I always remember driving down Center Street in Castro Valley and that song was on. And I was driving my daughter's relatively new car that we helped to purchase. So it was her car, our car, and whatever. And she says, hey, Dad, you look at the sunroof and you want to open it up? And I kind of look up and the next thing I know, boom, you know, the car flying in the car, go into the side and a car was backing out. Thankfully, they were backing out onto that's always a question when the kids have ever said they've been in an accident. I want to know who was, who was at fault right away. But I think the first question is, are you OK? Second question is, is who was at fault? But this car was backing up. But the next thing I knew, that song was on. He gives and takes away. He took that car away for a few weeks, and thankfully we were fine. But what do we, how do we respond? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. A promise and oath was enough. But they were without a child, Abraham and Sarah. For 25 years... You think of what it is that God is, uh, you're wanting God to do today, what you're asking him to do. Maybe you've been waiting two hours. Maybe you've been waiting two days. Maybe even two years, and you're persisting. Is there someone here that's been waiting 25 years? I bet there maybe is. But they were hanging on to the character of God. God, I don't know how you're going to do this. You know, Sarah's no spring chicken. Neither am I. But you said what you're going to do. Now we're just going to watch you do it. How exciting to have that kind of trust. And God's purposes for us, as he said here, what his purposes are. Do you ever think about that? God, what are your purposes for me? What is it you want to see accomplished in my life? Is this the brevity of this life? whether it's 10 years, 20 years, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 that you're on this planet. What are your purposes? One of them is, is and I, it's very clear in Scripture, and I've talked about this before because I see this over and over again, is God wants us to grow up. Uh, he doesn't want to see a... It would be very troubling to see a 30-year-old man or woman who was healthy uh, sipping from a bottle. Um, we would, that would catch our eye, wouldn't it? Yeah, a milk bottle. I'm not talking about the other kind of bottle. That happens. The milk bottle, like, like an infant. We'd say, well, that's strange. They didn't grow up. Now, that's a crude example of the analogy of it. But God wants us to grow up. And Paul talks about this in Corinthians. He says, you know, it's great to desire the milk. And Peter says, desire the milk of the word. Great. Got to have the milk. But then he says, you know, as well, he goes, I, I, I want to give you meat. It's time to move on to meat. You can't stay on milk forever. And are we in a position today where you're saying, you know, God, I'm, I'm ready for the meat. Or I'm, I'm chewing on the meat and, I, and it's good. And in his wisdom, he says, have some more. When I get home this afternoon, we got some friends coming over. I'm throwing on a, a couple flank steaks. Looking forward to it. Going to um, have some good old steak, not just salad all the time and chicken. It's nice to have some steak, too. But some meat. 
But here's the thing about when God is doing these things in his purposes. Is did God check in with you this morning as to how he's going to do that? Did he tell you his timetable? Did he say, you know, I'm, I'm just, it's going to be starting June 1st. That's when I'm going to start giving you some meaty things in your life. That's when the trial is coming. It's going to be August 25th at 8 a.m. Be ready. Set your watch. Did he do that? I don't think he did. What I find interesting, and this is where we're going into some, a little depth here, is when you read the account of Job, we're bene- we have the benefit of seeing this story. Right? I mean, we see that Satan had to have permission to approach Job after he had talked with God about it. And, you know, the whole dialogue, Job basically, or Satan basically says, you know what, Job just follows you because you've given him all these things. And so then God gives permission for him to be tested like he was and for all that stuff to happen so quickly. But, you know, I don't think that Job knew what was going on behind the scenes, the warfare that was going on there between God and Satan. I don't get that sense when I read it. And so there may be stuff happening in your life, and there may be stuff happening next week. And you, God in his wisdom and his character, he, he does not feel privy to have to explain this all to you or to me about his timetable or about how he wants to educate us. He doesn't give us the specifics, does he, on the, on the lesson plan. And this is where the real trust and, and issue comes in for us. As we can say, yeah, the anchor holds, even though right now the, the seas, they're a gale force in my life. Or they have been. But God didn't give a great announcement about it in advance to necessarily prepare you for that specific thing. Other than to say that in this world you will have trouble. And he tells us in James chapter 1 and in Peter... Peter says, don't be surprised by the fiery trials. James chapter 1, he says, you know, consider it pure joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. So we get the general idea, but we don't know the specifics. And if God were to tell us today, and he says, this is your, the lesson plan today. This is the trial. This is the hardship. This is the storm I want you to go through. Would we, if we had a say, would we say, okay, God, I'm on board. That'd be awesome if we did. But you know what? If he gave us a couple of options, would you like to learn this lesson through sunshine? Or would you like to learn it through rain? Would you like to learn it when everything is awesome? Or would you like to learn it when things are really stormy? Which do you choose? I have a feeling I know what a lot of us would choose, myself included. Give me sunshine. Yeah, I'd like to learn the lesson with the least amount of pain and suffering. There's a story told in nature about the emergence of this moth called the, and I hope I'm pronouncing it right, the Cecropia moth. And it's about what happens when it emerges from its, its cocoon. And it's an event that occurs only with much struggle on the part of the moth to free himself. The story is told about this um, man who was watching a moth go through this struggle. And in an effort to help, and not realizing the necessity of the struggle, the the guy viewing this snipped the shell of the cocoon. And soon, as you can imagine what happens, the moth comes out with its wings all crimped and shriveled. But as the person watched, the wings remained weak. The moth, which in a few minutes would have stretched those wings to fly, 
was now doomed to crawling out to its brief life in frustration of ever being the beautiful creature God had intended this moth to be and created it. person didn't realize that the struggle to emerge from the cocoon was an essential part of developing the muscle system of this moth and of the body and being able to push those body fluids out into the wings to expand them. That whole struggle process was doing that work. Seeking to cut short the moth struggle did more harm than good. And you think about that and how that applies to us. Do we want to shortchange the, the process of that struggle? And yet, when we're in it, when we're going through it, our muscles, our spiritual muscles, if you like, of faith and trust in God as the anchor are getting strengthened. But if we say, you know what, let's just cut it short. I'm tired. One day was enough. Well, maybe God in his education and his wisdom says, you know, no, it's going to be longer. But maybe he didn't tell you that. You realized it was longer when you were out of it. A year later. Two years later. We see in, in Scripture, in, in James, or sorry, in John chapter 15, that he uh, is a master gardener. He prunes. He tells us this. He, he gives us heads up on this. He prunes the branches of his vineyard. The other, uh, this last spring, or I, I should say in the winter, uh, we have a number of rose bushes. You probably do too. And I never really had done much pruning. And I said, you know what, this year, I'm tired of the disease of last winter. They, I kind of don't really know exactly what I'm doing. Sadly, I mean, I kind of know what you're, how you're supposed to do it, but I went ahead and just chopped and just started pruning. And I had those things like, will they ever come back? You know, I was kind of worried. Well, guess what? Those things are coming back better than ever right now. And I scratched my head and I said, you know what? I should have been doing this every season. I should have been doing some pruning. But God who does pruning in our lives, he knows what he's doing, absolutely what he's doing. Whereas I didn't quite know what I was doing. A, the healthy vine requires both nourishment and pruning. And what scripture is telling us here is that through the word we're nourished. But through adversity, that's when we're pruned. Got to have both brothers and sisters in our lives for God to do that work. Lamentations 33, uh, the writer says, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. He does not willingly bring it just for no purpose. He doesn't say, I'm just going to chop you down today and just cut you down to size and just bring suffering and hardship into your life for no good purpose. That's not in the character of God. He loves us and he does it for a good reason. But we've got to learn to respond to what he's doing. And I, and I trust we are. He wants us to loosen our grip on the things that aren't fruitful for us. Can you think right now today that there are certain things maybe that you would say, you know what, Lord, um, not that we have to ask him for or give him permission, but just to say, you know what? You have every right to prune. And, and I want you to prune in my life. I want you to go ahead and snip off the stuff that isn't making me more and more like you. And so I, I want you to do that rather than fighting it and resisting it. You know, it's funny, isn't it? When you get right down to the bare essentials of what really matters in life. When you're in those situations where you're watching someone dying or it's your own health that is really poor or you're with your family and you're on vacation and you're all together or whatever it is in those moments, you say, you know what, all this other stuff, all this other stuff that I crowd in my life and that I allow to smother and choke really doesn't need to be there. 
doesn't need to have the same priority or emphasis that I give it. And then lastly, and this is kind of a slight shift, but God's people, where God doesn't change, what we see from Scripture is that God's people can change in light of God's promises, God's purposes, and his character. But thankfully, today, you can change, and you are changing. Remember, that's what it's all about, Philippians 1, 6. That's what Paul says. He says, you know, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it, will perfect it. It's a work in progress. There's something wrong if we have just stopped changing. I mean, we're obviously changing in our physical appearance. Uh, some, yeah, I won't go any further. We're, we're changing. And we know it. Um, we're aging. We're maturing, we like to say. Spiritually, is that happening as well? For the good. It's never, we're never too old, never too young to be changing. Hopefully it's not just, well, I'm, you know, I've been doing it like this and I'm, this is how I am and I'm never going to change. No, that's, we don't want to hear that. In Hebrews chapter 12, it's interesting that Christ was able to accept as a man what the Father was going to put him through because he saw beyond what was going on now. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. God wants to remind us of that. How did Christ view suffering? For the joy set before him. Brothers and sisters, that's the secret, isn't it, for us? Is how we view the suffering of whatever it is that we're going through. We look forward to what's happening. And this hope of change and of the future home that we have in heaven and in all that God's doing is an anchor for our souls. Why do we need an anchor for our souls? Well, I know me, if you're like me, that there's a tendency sometimes to drift. You know, you're going in a certain direction. I was watching uh, the ship, and he knew exactly the course to take us to the different places that we were going. Got us eventually to New York City, just fine. But he, he, he set the course. I didn't sense at any time he ever got on the speaker and said, you know what, I've, I've gotten us off course. We, we're drifting due to no reason other than the fact that I've, I'm no longer really ma- uh, controlling the ship and steering it. You know, we're 500 miles off course. No, that didn't happen. Never heard that. But we tend to drift. Remember when we were in Northern Ireland going to Scotland once, and there was a, the ship, uh, we were on a, a ship going from Belfast to, to Scotland, and it wasn't a large ship, but all of a sudden I didn't hear the engine any longer. And uh, I remember asking somebody, I said, excuse me, I don't hear the, uh, we don't seem to be moving. I don't hear the engine. And she said something like, oh, yeah, that's kind of, that's just normal. We're just, you know, I was looking at her like, I don't think so. And then the captain got on the announcement and said, engine failure. We're getting towed back. We were drifting. As we started to drift, people's uh, drinks and stuff were starting to sway off the tables onto the floor. And it left an impression on my, one of my daughters that she says, I really haven't been able to get on a boat since. We need an anchor because there's a tendency to drift. But you know yourself, the anchor is a steadying force and prevents drifting in stormy seas of our lives. And the anchor is sure. The Greek word for anchor means it, it, it carries this idea that it doesn't slip. 
He won't lose his grip on us. God won't change his mind. And is that story with the disciples in the boat. It provides calm, doesn't it, during these stormy seas. He's sleeping. He's not checking out when the disciples are going through the storm, but he has this sense of calm. Stories told of a shipwrecked sailor who was uh, clinging onto a rock until the tide went down. And after he was able to make it to safety, a friend asked him the question. He said, didn't you just you know, absolutely shake with fear when you were hanging onto the rock? And the sailor smiled and said, yes, but the rock didn't. And that's the key. That's who we turn to is, is the rock. We might be shaken, but we know the hymn, don't we? Rock of ages, cleft for me. That doesn't move. In closing, you know, just as we're getting ready to wrap up, the anchor serves another purpose, though. And I really wasn't totally familiar with this example. But the biblical picture is one of moving ahead in safety and confidence. And it's by casting your anchor forward. And then as the New English Bible translation says, grasping the hope set before us. That's kind of an interesting metaphor. You're kind of thinking, grasping the hope set before us. And it's the idea that you cast the anchor into the future and you're winching one's way forward. And I understand that the practice is called kedging. wasn't familiar with that word. Kedging could be a new Scrabble word. But what it is is when storms would threaten a ship that was docked at port, or in the harbor, a crew of sailors would jump out of that main ship, go into another ship, but they would take the anchor and they would drag the anchor as far as it could go and drop it. And then what would happen is the large ship would, drip, uh, would drift to where the anchor was, out in the, away from where the danger was at port. And then that anchor would be let down, and the, like I said, the ship pulled itself forward into deeper water on that anchor chain. Brothers and sisters, God wants, uh, maybe today, maybe he's already doing it. Maybe he's going to be doing it soon for you, but he wants to take you into deeper water. Now, maybe you're content. Maybe you're content, truth be told, and you want, Lord, shallow water's fine for me. You're a swimmer, not real comfortable, comfortable being in deeper water. So you've kind of liked just being around the three foot, two foot. But God may be saying, time to move deeper. Time to go deeper. And, and it's not that he's telling you, you initiate this. He's, he's actually saying, I'm initiating this. I'm taking you deeper. And what are we going to do? Uh, we're going to kind of, you know, just shake and, you know, stomp and, you know, feet in the water and like hands and just, you know, resist it? Or are we going to say, okay. I'll go forward with you as long as you promise as the anchor to hold me. Keep me, keep me right. Keep me steady. He wants to move ahead. God loves us too much to want to keep us in shallow waters all of our lives. Interesting thing as we wrap. When you think of the anchor, when I was looking at some of the anchors on the ships, when it's cast into the water, you don't see it, do you? You don't, you don't see it any longer when it's underneath. We have this hope, an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. 
but we don't see it. Sailors don't see the anchor that grips the bottom of the harbor. But they're certain of their safety because it's there and they know it. No doubt, and as I wrap up, I just think of a passage in, in Job. No doubt we're like Job, who when he was in the different storms that I alluded to, and obviously the stuff that he was going on, he had lost a sense of God's presence. He had lost a sense of his help. And he actually says in Job 23, verse 8, he said, but if I go to the east, referring to God, he's not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Another beautiful example of where the writer says this in Isaiah, chapter 45, verse 15. Isaiah said the same thing that Job says here. He says, Isaiah 45, 15, Truly you are God who hides himself, O God and Savior of Israel. Interesting. So it's not unusual when you're going through something that you said, you know what, I don't really get a sense. I'm not really seeing you right now. I'm kind of confused. So were these guys. But in their goodness, Isaiah 43, 2. Isaiah saw this. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. That's what God wanted to reassure. He's not going to leave us alone. And wonderfully, and I close with what Job said, that when he'd gone through everything that he'd gone through, he did come to this conclusion, and because God had taken him deeper, and because God had taken him deeper, his relationship with him had gone much deeper than it already was. And remember what God told Job, or told Satan about what kind of man Job was. But in um, Job 42, verse 5, The conclusion is this. He says, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. May that be what happens in our lives as God continues to take us through uh, the different storms and different things in our lives. That we'll come to that place where we can now say, you know what? It's deeper now. And now, not only do I hear you, but now I actually see you. And I see what you're doing. Lord, we want to thank you for the fact that you are an absolute anchor for us. We thank you that uh, while we see those who don't know you going around, uh, just trusting in whatever shifting sand that is out there, we thank you that you are that surety and that hope, and you're absolutely faithful to us. We just pray that as we have a sense of what you're you're doing in our lives, that we will be uh, very open, very um, obedient, Uh, to whatever it is, if you want to take us deeper in our relationship and walk with you. For we ask this in in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.